Amen. Good morning, ACC downtown. How are we doing today? That's a, that's a call and response thing, you know. Uh, Ryan did say I'm a rapper. That is true. I'm not going to rap for you today. Um, boo. Yeah, sorry. 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 Uh, uh, my name is Esso. My mom named me Sean Otukbe. I was born in Nigeria, then I moved to London when I was nine. Seven odd years ago, my wife and I moved to San Antonio. Clap it up for San Antonio one time. River walk. River walk. That's all we have. I'm I'm the pearl. I'm joking. I love it. Um, this morning, we're looking at an interesting passage. I also want to, you know, shout Ryan and Izzy. We have a, a, a budding friendship growing, a budding brotherhood. So it is an honor to open God's word with you guys this morning. Yeah? We're looking at an interesting passage, aren't we? The unmerciful servant. Funny, let me tell you a quick story before I get into it. Two weeks ago, I met this thing, San Antonio Church Planting Network. Me and Ryan are talking. I'm like, hey, bro, I see you guys are in your little stories. Not little stories, you know what I mean. You guys are in your story series. And he's like, yeah, what are you preaching on next? The unmerciful servant. I said, would you believe that not this coming Sunday, I'm actually preaching at my church the same passage. He said, no. I said, yeah. Then he said, well, I guess you're preaching at our church then next week. I said, <laughs> so that's how we got here. That's how we got here. So I am, I am grateful. Um, anytime it is to open the word of God, I am always humble to do that. So can we get into the passage this morning? That, sorry. Rappers ask for call and response. When I say a question, I do expect a response. Can we get into the word this morning? Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Listen, to err is human, to forgive divine. Or, like a rapper, the biggest boss, Rick Ross said, he says, God forgive, I don't. Now, there are many rabbit holes when we're talking about forgiveness. We can go down many of them because here's the truth. We are all in this room probably quicker to want forgiveness than we are to grant forgiveness. We're quicker to want it because we're human. So that English poet who said to err is human to forgive, uh, to, to forgive divine is correct. We want forgiveness because we know as relational beings we're going to be dealt with a card where sometimes, someplace in our life, we're going to say, please forgive me. Please I've done something wrong to you. I've shown my humanness to you. So can you please, please, please forgive me? So we want it, but we aren't quick to grant it. That's where we are met with Jesus in this story about the unmerciful servant. So I want to press in a bit on this this morning. I want to look at forgiveness from the perspective of Jesus from Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I want to look at it from four things. The difficulty of forgiveness. The desperate need for forgiveness, the duty of the forgiven, and lastly, the danger of unforgiveness. The difficulty, the desperation, the duty, and the danger. So when I preached this last week, I told somebody my title. They were like, man, that's a heavy title. I said, yeah, it's a heavy topic. And they were like, hey, Super Bowl is happening. Usher's about to perform. Can you prepare us for that? I said, I, said, I can't do that, unfortunately. Let me give you two reasons why I think it's important for us to talk about this. Not only because we're in this series, but one, in a room this size with people from different social and economic classes, your humanity is going to come out. At some point, you are going to rub somebody up the wrong way. It's a British idiom. 
You're going to say something to someone that they may not like. You're going to do something to someone that they may not be pleased with. And you have two roads before you in that moment. One road is a road of forgiveness. The other road is a road of dissension, envy, discord, and bitterness. One road leads to Jesus. The other road leads to evil looks in the gym or in the coffee shop. So we need to talk about this. Second reason I think we need to talk about this is because the world is watching. If you're a Christian in here, you know that the world is looking at how we do our relationships and think, are they going to do it differently from us? Or are they going to forgive the way we forgive, which is no forgiveness at all? Are they going to forgive like Jesus or are they going to forgive like us, which is to cancel and discard and remove people? Essentially, they're going to say, do they believe what they believe or are we wasting our time with them? They're going to ask you a question. Do you forgive like Christ or do you forgive like Rick Ross? Essentially saying, God forgives, but I don't really. I don't do that. This morning, let's, let's talk about it. Is that okay to talk about this this morning? Yeah. You know, I just want to walk through this text with you. The difficulty of forgiveness, the desperate need for forgiveness, the duty of the forgiven, and the danger of unforgiveness. Firstly, the difficulty of forgiveness. Forgiveness is really a difficult thing for many reasons. It was C.S. Lewis who says that everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has someone or something to forgive. He said that, and I believe it. And our text gives us one of the many reasons of why forgiveness is so difficult. Namely, how much forgiveness should I give someone? If someone wrongs us in this room, how many times should we forgive them? Is our forgiveness enabling? Should Christians ever say, I'm withholding my forgiveness from someone? That's why we can really resonate with Peter's question in verse 21. He says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? If you don't know, Peter's been hanging around Jesus a lot. So he knows that forgiveness is a big deal to his ministry. In Matthew 5, Christ talks about forgiveness. When he's healing people, he says, hey, before I even heal your ailment, your sins are forgiven. In chapter 18, he talks about forgiveness. So Peter understands that in Christ's ministry, forgiveness is a big deal. At the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something, something striking. He says, listen, if you know you're about to give a gift to someone, your brother or sister, and you know that person has a fault against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled with them, and then come and give your gift. Now, how many times do we see that in the church? How many times do we see that happening? So when Peter is asking a question, he's not asking it randomly. He understands that, hold on, wait, to Jesus, forgiveness is something major, so I need to get this right. Not only is he asking because he wants to get it right, he's asking, he says, seven times because he realizes that the rabbis in those days, they say, hey, forgive on the fourth, forgive on the third, sorry, at the seventh time, you're done. You don't have to do it. At the fourth time, you don't have to forgive anymore. Not only... That, but he's also saying this, seven is the number of perfection, right? If you know a little Bible scholars, you know, seven is the number of perfection. So, hey, Christ, I'm trying to look good here. I'm going beyond what the rabbis are saying. I'm also going to a number of perfection. So what say you, Lord? What say you about forgiveness? Jesus Christ hits him with the, I tell you not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. 
Here's what he's not saying here. Hear me. He is not saying at the 491st offense, you don't forgive. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is that followers of Jesus don't keep count. He's saying that the way of the kingdom is to see forgiveness as a way of life. That there actually is no limit towards forgiveness and mercy for the Christian. That actually, if you're keeping tally on how many times you've forgiven someone, the chances are you haven't forgiven that person in the first place. Or you don't understand biblical forgiveness. As difficult as forgiveness can be, Christians should be identified by it. Not by the difficulty of it, but our willingness to give limitless forgiveness in this way. I remember growing up, my grandfather, old, old man, had a tattoo on his arm. At least it looked like a tattoo. I was very wrong. So I walk around saying, look at my granddaddy's gangster. Look at him. Look at this Nigerian man. Look at him. Tat it up, B. When I got older, I realized, my mom told me that that's not a tattoo, actually, son. That's an identification marker. So here's what would happen. My granddad, old man, well, young man then in the village would get lost and go to a neighboring village. And somebody would see the ink on his arm and be able to identify who he was and where he belonged to. What am I saying this morning? I'm saying that do people in the world see how we forgive people and our willingness to not keep count and say they're Christians? They're believers by how they forgive. Why? Because this kind of forgiveness that Christ is talking about was countercultural then, and guess what? It's countercultural now. I don't know if you know, but the world keeps tallies, the world keeps score. The moment that their peace is affected, you heard that before, my peace, you're affecting my peace. The moment that their peace is affected, you're discarded. You're removed from the space. But here's the issue with that, though. If everybody lived according to that worldview, we would all be canceled. We would all be discarded because each and every one of us affects everybody's peace. Christ is saying as difficult as forgiveness is, Christians need to embody it. Not be doormats. Not saying be a doormat. What he is saying is that we need to be willing to give forgiveness in a way that looks not like the world, but that looks like the kingdom. As difficult as it is, if the Holy Spirit is in us, which he is, we can do it. The real question then is how? How do we forgive in a biblical way, in a way that isn't keeping score, in a way that isn't looking like the world? And I think that Christ helps us through this parable of the unmerciful servant to answer that question. In fact, before he even answers the question about how we forgive, he needs to remind us about our desperate need for forgiveness. Our desperate need. So my second point is the desperate need for forgiveness. He starts to tell Peter this story to illustrate forgiveness. The story has three acts. In act one, we see the desperate need. Jesus begins and says that a king is settling accounts and getting his affairs in order. And as he's doing this in verse 24, he finds that one of his servants owes him 10,000 talents. Not like a talent, like a sing, like singing or rapping or juggling. I don't know if any, any, any professional jugglers in this room. Um, there might be. Who knows? Um, we are in ACC downtown, so anything can happen. Now, one talent, hear me, is worth 20 years' wages for a laborer. 20 years, one talent. So by my calculation, Ryan, 10,000 talents is how much, math? 200,000 years' wages. Or 
to put in monetarily 3.4 with a capital B billion dollars. Now, what did this servant do to get into this debt? Why didn't he call Dave Ramsey? Why did he, why did he do uh, financial peace? Why did he do all of that? The text doesn't say it. Jesus doesn't tell us why he gets into it. All he does say is, is that this debt is enormous and unpayable by the man. Verse 25 says that since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Listen, in those times, if you were caught in a debt, everything that belonged to you wasn't safe. Everything was sold. The servant then realizes what's going on. He says, oh, 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 oh. I owe that much? He says, well, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, what's interesting that he says that, isn't it? Because it's either the servant doesn't understand how large the debt is or that he's putting a false hope in himself. To actually think you could pay 200,000 years worth of wages. Now, I've done a little Bible reading. I know the oldest guy in the Bible lived till 802. Methuselah. This man is not living till half of that. So how does he think he's going to pay that off? How does he think that? He is in desperate need of a miracle. If not, hear me, everything he knows and everything he has will be sold off, including himself. That's why verse 27 then is the turning point of this passage. Read it with me. It says, the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. A desperate man in a desperate situation, desperately needing a miracle, and guess what? He gets one, not because of his works or because of what he's done, but solely because of the king. Notice, if you would, also that the king does more than a man would ask. The man says, I need more time. What does the king do? He forgives him the loan. The king offers him complete freedom. Not just for him, but his wife, his children, and everything he has. There are no conditions set, but he is freely forgiven. One commentator is correct to say that this is an act of pure grace. So why is Christ telling us this story in this moment? I'll tell you why. He's telling us because he wants us to know that this is what forgiveness looks like from God's perspective. That if we're, if we're wrestling with forgiveness and we're trying to figure out what does that mean for me in my context, this is it. Tim Keller makes it, makes it really clear for me. He says, forgiveness then, from God's perspective, firstly names the thing. Do you notice that? That the, that the king didn't sweep what the servant owed under the rug. When we think about forgiveness, sometimes some people think that when Christians are talking about forgiveness, from our perspective, we think, just hide it away. Don't, don't mention a thing. No, no, no. That's not Christian forgiveness. Christian forgiveness brings everything to the light. and says, you've done it. You've wronged me. You've said this. It, it, it brings everything to the light. That's the first thing. Second thing is Christian forgiveness is compassionate. It's compassionate. This king has compassion on the servant. If we as Christians, if you're, if you're a Christian here, if we are to do forgiveness the way the Bible says it, then we must have compassion on those who have wronged us. What's compassion mean in the New Testament? It means to have pity. It means to have affection in your inward parts. It means to be moved to your stomach for someone. You know what that means? It means you can't caricature that person. 
person has done something wrong to you, you can't paint them with evil horns. It means that you have to see that person for exactly who they are, a person who needs God just like you. It means they have to see that person as someone with issues and problems. So first thing, you name the thing. Second thing is you have compassion. Third thing is he released him. Simply put, he let him go. He didn't hold it against him. He didn't start talking rubbish about him behind his back. He didn't say that you must be groveling, you must keep on groveling, and if you don't grovel, you haven't been forgiven. Because that is how the world does it. The world says that in order for you to be forgiven, you must pay me back. And I don't mean pay back judicially. I mean you must continue groveling until I say it's okay. Brothers and sisters, that is not forgiveness. That's vengeance. <laughs> that isn't forgiveness. Last thing he did was he forgave him the loan. Now, I don't, I don't think anybody in here has $3.4 billion. If you do, let me borrow a dollar. But <laughs> if, you, if you lost $3.4 bill with a capital B and you restore someone back to their position, that money that, you, that you've just lost doesn't just disappear, by the way. It disappears quite literally, but you have to eat that. Somebody has to take the grunt and the hit of that. So the king not only does all of these things for him, but he takes on the debt. He takes it on. Remember one time my wife and I were driving. Well, not one. My wife was driving. She had just gone into a little, little situation in the car. So I, had, I took one of the youth. I said, hey, quickly, let's, 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 let's go and get my wife, it was raining, pouring down. She, we get her, I hop into my car, my, my, the youth is driving behind me, the rain is pouring down, and we stop, and guess what happens? The youth hits my car. Boom. We get to the church parking lot, I'm looking at the thing, I'm like, okay, I see what this is. It's bad. I told her, I forgive you. But guess what's still damaged? The car. Somebody still has to pay for the damage of the car. And who paid for it? This guy. No, because I'm, I'm kind of like that. There is an aspect of Christian forgiveness that may call us to take on the debt. What does that mean? It means that you don't badmouth the person who hurts you. It means that even if you could, you don't talk bad about them. It means that maybe, maybe you seek restoration and you seek reconciliation. And maybe even you trust that person again. That's what forgiveness is from God's perspective. But even deeper than that, to understand this parable more, we have to see that we are the servant in this story. We are the servant in need of desperate forgiveness. As I was preparing for the sermon um, last week or two weeks ago, I started thinking about how to explain sin to a culture that doesn't understand it. Because what we've done is we have relegated sin to just mean bad behavior. If you don't go to the club, if you're not smoking, if you're not drinking excessively, blah, 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 blah. If you are doing those things, then you're sinning. But if you're not doing those things, you're not sinning. But the Bible really has a more comprehensive view on sin. The Bible says that sin is not just what you do outwardly, but also what you do inwardly. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 5, when Christ says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, which is to have sex with someone who's not your husband or wife. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully... 
that is to look at someone with a longing and a craving desire, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that you can actually be faithful in your relationship, but in your heart, you could have slept with hundreds of people. It changes how we think about sin, doesn't it? When we look not only to the fruit of it, but to the root also. Sin, then, is a heart that lives for itself. It's a heart that treasures itself over God. It is a heart that says, I want what I want more than what God wants for me. Sin is the selfishness, the greed, the envy, the bitterness, the grudges that we hold against each other. Those things that only God can see. Let me give you one more. Sin is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Because you know you can forgive outwardly just so you can look good. That's sin. You know what this means? It means we're all guilty. Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is a big thing not just to us, but it's a bigger thing to God. Jesus likens our sin to debt. It says that our sin is like a debt to God. And since God has created us and he has given us his law, he has called us to live for his glory and his glory alone. And when we don't do that, guess what we're doing? We're rejecting him. We're sinning against him. And our sin has eternal consequences. Our sin puts a minus in our account. Our sin puts a red in our account. I don't mean the blood of Jesus either. Our sin makes us guilty before God. Our sin, whether we like it or not, is a crushing thing. It is a mountain between us and God. Unless someone is willing to move the mountain. Unless someone is willing to pay the debt. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor in the UK, he says this. He said that nobody knows how to respond to the statement, your bill is paid until we know how big the bill is. The size of your bill determines how you respond to someone who pays for it. And you only know how to respond when you understand the size, the scope, and the magnitude of the bill. One time we were driving to Columbia, Missouri, never again drive to Columbia, Missouri, far too long, never doing that again. But we did it one time, amen. We're driving to Columbia, Missouri, we stop over in Dallas, a nice man comes into Chipotle, we go to get some food. A man sees me and my daughter and says, hey, I'm going to pay for your, your dinner today. I said, oh, cheers, bro. My wife hit him with a, oh, that's nice. That's cute. That's cute. But imagine, though, if you would, if a stranger, someone I've never met says, hey, S.O., I'm going to pay for your mortgage. Not only am I going to pay for your mortgage, I'm going to pay for your mom's mortgage. I'm not only going to pay for her mortgage, I'm going to pay for your sister's mortgage. And then somehow, some way, I'm going to figure out, your kids who don't have a home, I'm going to put money in a trust, and when they do buy a house in Southtown, it's super expensive, in Southtown, I'm going to pay for their mortgages. What's happening there? I'm running, I'm screaming, I'm excited. Why? Because I understand the size, the scope, and the magnitude of the bill. Right? So what am I saying this morning? I'm saying that when God calls us, and which one day he will. When he calls us into his court and says, you've been racking up the debt, and it's time to pay up. When he calls and says, we are guilty, we can't stand and say, no, we're not. And any attempt, our righteous works that we try to do, any attempt that we do to try to make ourselves look right before God is filthy rags. It doesn't even add up. It doesn't even mount up. God says that we are chasing off the wind. 
Anytime we try to work out our salvation and save ourselves, we are literally chiseling that mountain with our fingernails. It will never work. But in steps Jesus. In steps Jesus and says, yes, they are guilty, Your Honor. Yes, they've done it. They've sinned against you. The debt they owe is true, but I will take it. I will pay for it. And I'm not going to pay for it with something flimsy. I'm going to pay for it with my life. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Christ paid it all. The, the hymn says, Christ paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had a crimson stain. Well, Jesus did what? He washed it white as snow. That's good news. Can we make some noise for good news in here? What? We're fully paid. Our sin is now fully paid. We are fully accepted. Our sin is now cast into the ocean. It is remembered no more from east to west. It's done. That sin that used to burden us, that used to be a weight on us, is now removed. Do you know how powerful that is? Do you know how life-changing that is? Or how life-changing that can become? That those who put their faith in Christ need no more fear God. Why? Because the sin bearer and the sin absorber has taken your sin for you. He's taken it for you. So are you in here and you're not a Christian? Do you not know this good news of Christ? That your sin has been forgiven. That the debt you owe God need no longer hang over your head. Do you know this morning you can be forgiven? That you can receive Christ and you need to not worry about where you will be if and when you die. You can trust that Jesus, the one who has paid for your sins, loves you eternally and he has infinite compassion, infinite mercy for you. And if you are a Christian in here, let me give you three words. Rest in this. Too much of our Christianity, we think that we have to work for our salvation. Why? Because our heart position is to work for salvation. We think we must do something and then God will like us. But as Tim Keller said, our Christianity is received and not achieved. We receive this salvation. We don't work for it. So rest in it. No longer trying to work for your salvation, but always just resting in the fact that Christ has taken your debt for you. Let me tell you how silly it is to try to work for your salvation. It's like saying, I'm going to pay $3.4 billion in debt in my lifetime. That's how dumb it sounds, respectfully. <laughs> respectfully. Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. This is not of our own doing. So Jesus lets us know our desperate need for forgiveness before he even starts to talk about how we can forgive other people. Because we need to know that and embody that first, and then we can say, okay, cool, he's forgiven me this way. Okay, let me go and forgive other people the way he's forgiven me. So thirdly, the duty of the forgiven. Back to our parable then. You will think that this servant who has been forgiven so much would then go and forgive other people. This, this servant who has received mercy, an infinite amount of mercy, you would think then that he would then go and say, okay, cool. I'm going to go do the same thing to other people. No, no, no. The Greek in the Bible says that this man, I'm going to call him Tom. I hope there's no Tom in here. There probably is a Tom. There is no Tom. I love it. This man, Tom, what, what a lovely Hebrew name. This man, Tom, decides to go and find another servant. 
he goes to discover, to look for him, another servant who's owed him money. And he's so upset that, he's owed, that he owes him this money, which isn't little, but in comparison to the debt that he's just been canceled, the response is striking. The new servant does what the old servant does. He pleads with him and says, please, forgive me, help me. I will go and pay you back. I will do it. And he can. But the other servant says, no, I'm so upset, I'm going to grab you by the neck and I'm going to throw you in prison. Other servants see this, they're a bit perplexed. Oh, hold on, wait, something's going on here. So they go and tell the king, and the king rightly comes to the servant and says to him, he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It is the punchline. The English doesn't do it justice, actually. It says in the Greek that it is necessary to have had mercy on your fellow servant. Think of that. Necessary. Not optional or a suggestion, but necessary. So what's Christ saying there? He's saying that those who have been forgiven by God have a necessary duty to forgive other people. Why? Because they have received mercy from God. The actions of the first servant proves one of two things, that he neither understands nor cares about the forgiveness that he's received. And if he did understand it or care, he wouldn't have responded the way he did. He would have responded differently to somebody who owes you maybe 1% of what you just got forgiven. You would have responded differently. Christ has given us this picture. He says, when you consider the two debts, He's saying, when you hold up what someone has done to you and you compare it to what God has done for you by forgiving you, if you refuse to forgive, you are showing that you don't care or you don't understand how much you've been forgiven. As hard as that sounds, that's why the question is so poignant, doesn't, should, isn't it? Shouldn't the mercy of God reach down? Shouldn't the mercy of God forgive? Shouldn't have you who have received mercy, shouldn't you also forgive? Shouldn't the grace that you have been saved by grace through faith, not of your own doing, shouldn't that change how you view other people when they've wronged you? Shouldn't that do something to you? The fact is it should, but oftentimes it doesn't. Let me tell you why. Because sometimes we suffer from something called spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia says, like the children of Israel, God saves us from Egypt, but I just forgot, Let me, we want to go back now. Spiritual amnesia says that I've been forgiven this huge debt, but because of self-righteousness, I'm going to forget that. I'm going to hold a grudge against someone. And before you know it, your spiritual amnesia that leads to self-righteousness leads you to start choking people with your words because you think you're better than them. You can't forgive someone that you think you're superior to. You just can't do it. When we forget we get in trouble. This film, I love, I love this film. It's called The Notebook. I don't know if anybody's ever seen this, uh, this, this, this beautiful film. I say beautiful, that really sounds. I'm a grown man. Why am I saying beautiful? Like a beautiful film? That's really interesting. Anyway, in this film, we, we find this old man and this old woman sat together. The old man is telling this old woman a story. This old, old man is telling this old woman a story about this young man, this young woman, they love each other. It's, you know, they're going in, they're from two different walks of life, and one person's like rich, other person's poor, but they love in there. It's beautiful, summer love, they break up. The old woman starts to question and say, this is not a fake story, is it? This is a true story. Is it a story about 
you? Is it a story about me? Now, as the film progresses, we, we start to realize that the old woman has dementia. So she forgets and then remembers. So in, in this season, she's forgetting. The old man says, yes, it is a story about you. It's a story about me. And something miraculous starts to happen in this film. The old woman starts to remember. She starts to remember the love that she had for her husband. And then before you know it, she asks him and says, hey, how long do we have left? The old man says, last time we only had five minutes. And so they start to dance, little cha-cha slide. It's beautiful. It's beautiful in this film. They start to dance. She asks, how were the kids doing? They're fine. And then before long, you know what happens? She forgets again. And he becomes a stranger to her. What am I saying in that moment? I'm saying, listen, if we as Christians don't continue to tell ourselves the love story of the gospel, we will forget how loved we are by God. But if we do tell ourselves the story of the gospel and how loved we are by God, how much he has forgiven us, how much he, he loves us and he wants to see what's best for us, we can do this thing called life and dance with elegance. And by remembering, we can forgive people. We must, we must look at how he has forgiven us and allow that to govern how we forgive other people. Paul Tripp He's a pastor says this, to the extent that you forget how much you've been forgiven, to that same extent, it is easier for you not to forgive the person in your life. If you fail to carry around with you a heart of gratitude for the love you've been so freely given, it is easy for you not to love others as you should. This morning, where is your heart? Are you trying to forgive with a strength of your own? Or are you trying to forgive with a strength that comes from the gospel? That's, that's what Paul is always talking about in his letters. Hey, do this in light of the gospel. Forgive in light of the gospel and become imitators of God. When we forgive, we reflect God and we imitate him. It is our duty as Christians to forgive. Lastly, the danger of unforgiveness. The last thing that this passage teaches us is the danger of unforgiveness. The king hands the servant to the jailers who torture him until he could pay back everything he owes. Jesus' words at the end should make us ponder. Also, also, my heavenly father will do to you, will do to everyone, unless you forgive your brother and sister from the heart. Christ, from the beginning of his ministry, has been clear. That those who don't forgive won't receive forgiveness. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you work for your salvation. Because you're saved by grace through faith. But what it does mean is that your salvation is proved by how you forgive. That your unwillingness to forgive actually may show that you're not a Christian. That's hard. That's a hard thing. Do you feel the stakes this morning? Do you feel that there are eternal ramifications if you refuse to forgive if you are unwilling to let it go. <laughs> to paraphrase another part of the scripture, what does it profit a man to gain bitterness and unforgiveness and then to lose his soul? I can't soften that blow for you. I'm sorry. But what I can do is let you know that there is also salvation for your unforgiveness. That if unforgiveness is a sin and Christ died for all our sins, then guess what? He also died for your unforgiveness. 
He died for the heart that is not willing to forgive. So this morning, would you be willing to give your unforgiving heart to the Savior? Would you be willing to say, hey, I don't understand it all, and I know it's tough. I know they've done this to me, but I know that you have walked this road before, Jesus. So would you please help me in my unforgiveness? Let me tell a quick story as I conclude about the Nigerian. I'm Nigerian, so I have to tell a story about Nigeria. About the Nigerian prince and the housemaid. Nobody here has heard the story because there were no Nigerians in here. That's not true. Come on, bro. I see you. I see Whoa, she said, that's not true. That's not true. Well, you won't know the story either. This Nigerian prince and his housemaid, his housemaid was about to die, and she tells the Nigerian prince, hey, listen, I need you to do me a solid. When I die, can you look after my son? Look after him. He's in the village. His dad is dead. So I need you to do me a solid. Treat him how I treated you. He says, cool, bro. No wahala, no problem. So he does that. The woman dies. The son grows up. He puts the son, the Nigerian prince puts the son in the finest shoes and Jordans and Bapes, all of the good stuff, in the finest clothes, even sends him to London. It's not my story, by the way. Even sends him to London, puts him in school. When he puts him in school, the Nigerian, the Nigerian prince doesn't know it that his adopted son is acting up in school. He's gambling, using all the money that he's being sent to pay for his school fees to go and do some shoddy stuff in the street corners. It gets so bad that the school finds out. And when the school finds out, they, set, they write him a letter and say, hey, listen, if you don't pay your school fees by tomorrow, you are kicked out. With no hope in the world, he doesn't want to embarrass his family. Nigerian culture is very shame and honor society. He doesn't want to embarrass his family. He decides, I'm going to kill myself. So he grabs a few pills. He grabs some alcohol. He says, okay, tonight's the night. I'm going to do it. He takes the drink, but the drink is a little too strong. He can't really control it. So guess what? He falls asleep. What he doesn't know is that his Nigerian prince adopted father is coming to visit him that same day. He has no idea. So the Niger- he's calling his adopted son like, hey, where you at? Doesn't speak in that accent, but you know what I mean. He says, where are you? He doesn't pick up. So he drives to the school and he finds his son laid on his dorm room with the pills, with the drink, with a note from the school. The, the Nigerian prince reads the note. And he says, I must do something. When the, when the son wakes up, he realizes that all his pills are gone, his drink is gone. And all that's left is a ring that he recognizes from his adopted father. And a note that says, I, Ade, will pay everything that is owed. And use this ring as a sign of a down payment. What's going on there? The Nigerian prince has seen what the son has done. He's realized that he is guilty and he deserves to get kicked out of the school. He realizes his sin and he says, I'm going to pay for it. What am I saying this morning? That when Jesus, who is the real Prince of Peace, when he comes to our home, when he comes to earth and he sees us in our sin, he knows that we are guilty, he sees us in our sin, and guess what? He still pays our debt. He still covers it all. And he then says that use that, use that as ammo. Use that as strength to then forgive other people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are not like the unmerciful servant. You are a God who knows, who hears, who sees. I pray, Lord God, for everybody in this room that we would firstly remember how much we have been forgiven by you. 
and that we would ultimately do our duty to forgive other people. Let us remember your love for us in the gospel, the truth that is set before us, that you love us more than we can ever imagine. Keep us. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen.